Hi, this is Colin. Here comes the nose. Uh, Fargo has entered its fourth season, and this time they've drafted comedian Chris Rock to play a fairly dramatic role about inter-gang violence in the 1950s in Kansas City. We've got a lot to say about that and also about series and when they should end and why they go on too long and who's doing what about that. Also about comedians who undertake dramatic roles. We'll also, of course, talk about The Fly because everybody has to talk about The Fly because it's actually the most manageable thing that happened in America this week was a fly. Uh, Usually you kind of try to avoid flies. Maybe not so much these days. We'll be back after the news. That's Elvis singing a Mac Davis. Well, he co-wrote that song, actually. Uh, actually, we want more conversation, not less uh, here. But Mac Davis, uh, we have like this huge problem on the show today on the nose because a number of legendary musical figures uh, died, um, ranging from Mac Davis, whom you, whose work you hear right there. By the way, a tremendous acting performance also in North Dallas 40, probably the best movie about football uh, ever made. And he essentially just plays Don Meredith, although he plays a fictional character in it. But uh, also Eddie Van Halen, of course, you'll hear him at the very end of the show today. And it's also the would have been the 80th birthday of John Lennon. So we've got a lot of mu- musical tributes that we have to do in and around the other stuff we need to talk about. Uh, and who is going to do that talking, you may ask. Well, uh, we have Sean Murray, uh, who is a stand-up comedian and writer, been with us uh, many times before, uh, and Irene Papoulis teaches at Trinity, t- teaches, teaches writing at Trinity College. She's joining us through the miracle of Skype. Irene is one of the foundational members of the nose, so, which I think means she was on the first episode ever. Also on the first episode ever of the Colin McEnroe show. So, I mean, you know, that's, that's who you're dealing with right here. Um, she even has a nose yeah. term of art named after her, the, the Papulian through line. We, we, we may not get one today. But um, yes, so the series Fargo, we're going to, I should say a little bit later in the show, uh, we're going to talk about the fly because you have to talk about the fly. The fly is, you know, it just, you know, we have to talk about it. But uh, before that, the, the show Fargo originally premiered on the channel FX. In 2014, it was created by Noah Hawley, inspired by the original Coen Brothers film. And the idea is that each season is kind of freestanding, freestanding plot. Sometimes there may be an overlapping character or two, uh, but not necessarily. And I think there's nobody that I can think of so far overlapping. This time, season four is premiered on September 27th. It's set in Kansas City, Missouri in 1950. So we've seen three of the 11 planned episodes. Uh, it's got uh, a pretty terrific cast uh, and uh, a pretty bizarre premise. Uh, maybe, uh, well, I'll just say that one of the driving forces of the premise is that one after one, uh, one after another, these gangs kind of show up 
uh, and uh, they are racial or ethnic gangs. Uh, they try to establish dominance in Kansas City uh, when a rival gang shows up. The way that they try to keep the peace is by sort of using sons as security deposits. Each gang leader gives his son to the other gang, the idea being that that will keep the peace. Um, it's probably worth noting that that does not appear to b- actually work if you're planning on trying it with your gang. But anyway, first of all, we see uh, the Jewish gang, then the Irish gang, then the Italian gang, and then the black gang. Uh, the black gang is led by Chris Rock. We're going to hear him uh, talking right now in this scene. Uh, y- so you're going to hear like a little bit of the dynamic. You're going to hear Chris Rock as the gang leader, Lloyd Cannon, his son, uh, has been entrusted to an Italian gang where his kind of caregiver looker out after her, uh, is actually an Irish guy who I don't I can't even explain it, but he was part of two of these kinds of exchanges. And he just a, a, an Irish boy who has now grown up to be the me- a member of the Italian gang played by the great British actor Ben Wishaw. Here we go. They feeding you? Mostly peanut butter. Where do you sleep? He's got a room on the third floor with me. You seeing those education? I'm teaching him how the world works. And how's that? It's dog eat dog. That's how dogs work. Men are more complicated. Not in my experience. You like staying here in the master's house? You make you feel appreciated? We live with the choices we make. Consequences. You tell me if they were taking my boy out to the woodshed. Because in my book, they say safe, they mean sound, unmolested. Nobody interferes with the boy. He's entirely in my keeping. All right. So I, I guess, first of all, just want to kind of take the temperature of the panel, uh, which there's a lot of that going on in America these days anyway. Uh, so, Sean, I know you've seen some of the other seasons uh, of Fargo uh, and had an interest in this one, partly because of fellow comedian Chris Rock. Uh, so how's it going for you so far? Uh, it's it's going all right. I mean, first of all, I want to thank you for mentioning Chris Rock as one of my peers. That's never been done before. <laughs> but uh, um I, I think it's I think it's interesting. I was saying uh, to someone before. I think the 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 prologue to the series that shows the kind of creation of the tradition of of giving away the sons as you know collateral or whatever. It seems to be a lot more interesting than what we're getting so far in the actual series. Like the, I, I, it's kind of unfocused, but you know I'm interested. It's definitely Noah Hawley does a great job of uh, getting you engaged with that the world he builds. But I don't really not really sure if I actually like it yet but i'm interested for sure right we should say that one of the many 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 characters in this is a young uh, african-american girl named ethel rita uh and at the beginning she does do this sort of amazing narration in which she talks about using frederick Douglass to a certain degree she talks about the way that all arriving or ascendant 
ethnic or racial groups in America are effectively criminalized from the very beginning. Uh, and uh, the way that she expresses this, I mean, she just has this very, very interesting and penetrating voice that's, I guess she's 16. Uh, she's Her voice is just so much more acute and learned and knowing than anybody else's in the series. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of stop using her that way. But uh, they may start, start up again. We don't know. Irene, how about you? How's How's it going so far? Yeah, well, I was going to say first with her that she's like a good, she's like the good student, the super good, smart student that really sees everything. And that is really interesting. I I guess I would kind I, I I mean, I'm maybe a, like it a little bit more than Sean does. You know, Sean said, if, I'm not sure if I actually like it yet. I was a little bit unsure by the end of the first episode. But then, but now I'm sort of, I, I like the idea of every Monday night watching another one. It's not something that I would want to binge, but I like the idea of watching another one every Monday night. And I think it's kind of interesting. I mean, the whole thing with the kids is so wrenching, you know, what you're giving your kid away for collateral, what, you know, and that scene that you played makes me think, you know, can you just imagine? But anyway, he wanted to make sure the kid was okay, but still he, he, he wasn't going to take him back or anything. So yeah, I kind of liked it, like it so far. I'm interested. I'm intrigued. I'm wondering what both of you think about the show kind of stylistically. First of all, it's, it is terrific to look at and they have these kind of amber lit interiors, uh, in, in a lot of the scenes. But there's also this kind of very weird, uh, I don't know how to even explain it, but it's, it's really a melange of styles that are often kind of not in sync with the chronology or like even the time period of the series. Uh, and, and I keep getting reminded of the oceans movies because there are often these kind of propulsive drum beats. Uh, I need to say that at one point the, uh, the uh, black gang is getting out of a car uh, as part of one of these uh, occasional sun inspections. Uh, and there's this very funky music in the background that's actually played by the funky dogs, a, a new Orleans style group that originated at the university of Connecticut, which is kind of funny, but anyway, like they do these kind of split panel things on the screen where suddenly you're looking at three different panels showing you different aspects of the ongoing action and and you know Sean in a way I feel like all of that doesn't belong in such an acutely period story. I mean, you know, so much of the story is very explicitly 1950, except that the people who are filming it seem to be located in five or six other time periods. Well, yes, I mean, it, 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 I think the the stylistic choices could work if it enhanced the storytelling, which I feel like it hasn't done so far. I was listening to um, this podcast called The Watch on the Ringer, and, and they were they were talking about, like, in that first episode specifically, he uses so many, like, cool stylistic camera tricks and, and cinematography things that it kind of makes none of them, like, not one of them stand out because every every chance you get, there's a long take or there's a... Um, is a is an interesting editing trick where it's like there's never one that really stands out because they're all there's just so much happening it's like there's nothing special about any of it and it doesn't so far it really hasn't enhanced the storytelling like this there's been so many slow-mo exiting car scenes so far that like it's just kind of just the language of the show and not really like uh uh an indication that something uh interesting is about to happen i don't know it's being pointed out to me that a little less conversation. The song we opened with is also in Ocean's, Ocean's Eleven, <laughs> so, so it's all kind of tying together. Yeah, uh, but yeah, what about all that kind of trickery and, and gimmickry, Irene? How, how do you feel about it? 
I, um, I, you know, well, first of all, I'm thinking about the music and, and it is kind of reflected in the, in the music. Uh, like there's this Brahms piece that's really beautiful, Motet 74, that just gets thrown in there and there's jazz and there's everything. But, um, you know, I was thinking about the quote that's attributed to Tom Clancy, like the difference between fiction and nonfiction is fiction has to make sense. And in a way, it's trying, it's, you know, maybe trying to do this sort of postmodern thing of like, hey, just like a melange of all these things. But um, but I, I guess I'm agree. I agree with Sean that we need we're hoping that it's maybe going to go somewhere. Or it's going to add up to something or it's going to make sense as a as a melange, you know, that it doesn't quite yet. Um, maybe the plot, too, is a little bit like what is going to happen with those characters, with that nurse you know, what's her motivation? And, you know, there's, there, it's, it's interesting to think it, this is not what postmodernism should have come to, which is just like, watch whatever, you know, like just throw in whatever and call it, call it a piece of art, you know, that, that, that doesn't work. So, yeah, I, I, I like sort of Rococo approaches or like a postmodern Rococo approach where there's all kinds of ornamentation flung on there. Um, I, I'm, and I'm, I'm willing to roll with it here, but I do agree that no attempt is made to fit it to the mood or period of what's being shown. Why don't you just quickly take a little time to, to call out some actors here. There, there are some great performances here. Jesse Buckley, who is everywhere these days. Uh, she is the weird nurse that Irene is just talking about. Uh, uh, ben, oh, and she's also, of course, although not so much in this series, uh, but uh, if you saw her in Wild Rose or even um, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, kind of a Carolyn Payne body double. Um, uh, <laughs> but uh, Ben Wishaw, also <laughs> terrific. We mentioned him. Glenn Turman playing uh, a character named Dr. Senator, who's uh, the, kind of the conciliary uh, to uh, to Chris Rock's gang leader uh, and just is amazing, has a whole narrative about his role at Nuremberg that's uh, pretty great. And then as somebody who watched Gamora, I just want to say there's, there's an actor, a big, stocky, heavy, menacing actor uh, who plays a character named, named Gaetano in this. He was Gennaro in Gamora. He's uh, really wonderful, too. Uh, and then, of course, we've got Chris Rock and Jason Schwartzman. And and so I don't know. How, Sean, how do you think Chris Rock, your colleague and peer, Chris Rock, is doing uh, in this role? <laughs> My close personal friend, Chris Rock. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting because... I, I, I don't know if he fits the show just yet. And I, you know, there's, there's still a ton of episodes to go, but I feel like one of the things that a lot of times when you take a comedian and you put them in a dramatic role, with, you know, it, it, it works when you kind of key in on what their strength is as a comedian and kind of repurpose it for for drama. That's what worked so well with, like, Adam Sandler in um, Punch Drunk Love and, and, um, and also um, Uncut Gems. I feel like... Chris Rock's strength is kind of his like preachy quality, his big um, long uh, bits where he kind of just hammers home the same point over and over again. And then in, in this role and in so many of his dramatic roles, he's so understated where it's like, why specifically other than like the stunt casting of it, like would you pick Chris Roll to be mostly just giving quiet little stares and, you know, ha you know, there's been a lot of interesting scenes, but I, I feel like he's getting blown out of the water by uh, Glenn Turman every chance you get because like he's not really doing much right i would agree it's a pretty minimalistic performance uh, so far although uh, you sort of 
give him props also for riding the break a little bit and letting other people uh, shine. I mean, he could have pulled a star turn here. And I do agree. My example would be Robin Williams and the Fisher King. You know, you want to take what a person does well as a comedian and then turn it into something dramatic. Either that or you take some aspect of the person like Jerry Lewis and King of Comedy. You just see all the anger that you already knew was inside Jerry Lewis. But uh, yeah, um, Irene, uh, how about how about you and Chris Rock? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good point that Sean just made to, um, about how, what you what we don't see. But I think that that is part of what makes it interesting. It's like, wow, he's not I'm not thinking, oh, come on, say something funny, say something funny, you know, or I don't. He doesn't seem to be rolling his eyes, you know, on some level. He He's like really 100 percent in the role of this of this person that's very, very different from Chris Rock. So I kind of appreciate that in terms of him acting but I, I agree that if I didn't know it was Chris Rock or if, if he didn't if he weren't Chris Rock and it was just this guy acting he wouldn't really be that noteworthy as an actor in the in the show so it's kind of interesting so yeah it is it is like look look Chris Rock can do something different is kind of what it seems to be about you know, and he is placed against, sort of, Jason Schwartzman. At least so far, it looks like one of the plots of the many subplots here is going to be, I think, these two rival leaders of these two warring factions. And, you know, it, it's a somewhat different role for Schwartzman, too, uh, Sean, in the sense that although I think Jason Schwartzman, he's maybe a little less disciplined than Chris Rock, he can't not get some comic moments yeah. uh, out of these roles. Uh, but it's an unusual performance for him too yeah i mean he's another uh schwartzman's another instance where it's like i love short i mean i love chris rock too i love both of them it's just like he he always plays in such lighter fare that i'm kind of trying to figure out what they saw in him to make him perfect for this role i think at least with schwartzman's character I, i see something in terms of like the fact that schwartzman has never really had any edge to him kind of makes him good for the role if the if the point of the character is supposed to be that he's not fit for the leadership like he he doesn't like Gaetano comes in and he has kind of burly menace and you know the bug-eyed um look that he always gives where Schwartzman gives off none of that and I think you know I think part of the season is going to be about that the power struggle between them so I think if the point is that Schwartzman isn't at all imposing then he's doing a great job but if if he's supposed to be something else I'm not sure what we're going to get from that so far well, there's also, Irene, a very bizarre sexual encounter that uh, that he and the Jesse Buckley character, as, who's playing this deranged nurse, have that suggests that, yeah, part of this character is he can be steamrolled. You know, he can be whatever he thinks is going to happen at a given moment. Unlike a lot of successful gang crime lords, uh, he, he may be wrong and he may not be able to control the flow of things. <laughs> yeah. And well, and also it's like, Hey, why not? You know, like, I guess it'll feel good. So whatever, you know, it, it is more it was more his attitude than any kind of calculation. And and also he seems like, yeah, like definitely manipulative, manipulative, manipulatable, you know, by whoever, which is I hope what that scene is kind of pointing towards. Um, but, and also, yeah, like a coward. He just reminds me of Roman in succession, but um, maybe that's just me. Well, he, but it lacks Roman's kind of Mercutio type wit. You know, there's a sort of doomed but witty quality to Roman that I don't quite see in Schwartzman. He just seems like, as Sean is and maybe a little uh, over his head. 
you know, I just want to segue from here, if possible. We take take just a few minutes. This is one of the things that came up as we started talking about this is that Sean made the point that you know seasons one and two of Fargo had uh, pleased him, and you know, is Fargo going on too long? Are they even though the the you don't really have to stay with a group of characters for four seasons because they don't keep them; they they tear the whole thing down and start up all over again. And it got me thinking a little bit about. When, season, when series end, we're going through a thing with Netflix right now where they've just decided to pull the plug, partly because of COVID problems, partly because they just decided certain things don't need to keep going. I was a big fan of the women's wrestling uh, comedy drama with Mark Maron, Glow, uh, with uh, an amazing performance by Alison Brie uh, in it. Um, but, you know, Sean, it's an interesting question, and we sort of started exploring it as we were discussing how we were going to discuss stuff today, is that whole idea of do you you let Battlestar Galactica keep going until they just blunder <laughs> and, you know, go away from their incredible brilliance into just a big fat mess. Or do you as, you know, studio head or head of the network or whatever Ted Sarandos is at um, Netflix, do you make decisions for them? Yeah, it's really tricky because it's, it's kind of hard to find out when something's going to go off the rails. And, you know, obviously, especially, I mean, Sarandos, situation it's a little bit different but like you know for a normal network you know it's all about making making money getting ads sold so it's like if if it's if the if the product is still getting viewers of course you're going to keep it on the air but you know at some point it, it i mean there's been so many examples of of shows going off the rails you know five seasons in seven seasons in where it's like because they just run out of story uh so i think i think there are there are cases where you you got to just come in and say like hey we want to pick you up for even like let's just say, like, hey, we want, we want to have a three season series for you, and maybe they might extend upon, um, extend past that if there is more story that they can convince the studio of. But a lot of times, it's like you have a fifth season just because, hey, you know, let's keep the ball rolling where, uh, and it, it doesn't work out. So, yeah, you know, I mean, one thing that I was trying to convey today was that I think Netflix and and operations like it are a little bit different. As Sean is suggesting, you know, NBC needs something to fill those time slots. They need something that's popular. You know, if Dick Wolf can keep making things that are popular to fill those time slots, then they'll just keep doing whatever Dick Wolf wants to do. But, you know, I think Netflix is a little bit more in the finished product business in the sense that they, they want to have something that you could hear about even a year later. Somebody turns you on to Ozark and you start watching. And so to have that, you want something that is satisfying in a fairly holistic way from beginning to end. And that may put a different set of pressures on them. Absolutely. Because, and also you want to, I mean, it's even as we're talking about Fargo that we want to feel like maybe it's going to add up to, I hope is going to add up to something by the time we get to the end. So you want to trust that there's there's some kind of sensibility or you know um, in charge, and so I think the risk for not having an ending in mind or anything is that uh, viewers feel betrayed. You know, like the Lost story is a really good example of that. But you know, you want to feel you know, so it's sort of like what is your motive? But your motivation, and it's true that you want. Like so, with Ozark, do we need do we need to know where it's going? Do they should they know need to know where it's going? I sort of feel like they they you know writing should on some level have a sense of the tra- trajectory. Otherwise, it really falls apart. On the other hand, why do we you know maybe we just watch it because we like the people and we just want to see what happens next? Or like as John says, story. Like if you just keep on coming up with more stories about them, I suppose you could 
you could go on, go on forever. I don't know. Well, um, Sean, Sean, I think if you love something, if you love a series, you are a little bit torn. Maybe you want more of the series. But really, you also, if you love a series, you don't want it to not add up to something. You don't want okay. one or two flabby series tacked on to the three or four seasons that you liked, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, I mean, Game of Thrones is obviously a huge example of like it just going off the rails. That, that that happened for a number of reasons. But like, I even have shows like you know, Community. Dan Harmon leaves Community season three, comes back, and then when he comes back, you know, Donald Glover ends up leaving. Uh, Chevy Chase leaves. So like, there's so many other factors that can affect the outcome of the show. Where it's like, I, I, I you know, the kind of the adage like, leave him wanting more. I'd rather a series end, you know, on its own terms, and you know, in three seasons, then go on for five seasons. And I don't really like the second, the fourth and fifth season. Right. Yeah. But why don't you like it though? I mean, what is about, you know, is it because you feel like it's just not being propelled by something that makes sense to you in light of what it was in the beginning? Is that what would make you not like it? Well, yeah, sometimes it just feels like um, you can feel the strings being pulled behind the scenes where it's like a character should have died, but they didn't die because the studio said, Hey, you know, this is a good character. So let's keep them on. Where it's like the story being told would have been served best if, um, if the character died. I think so many of my favorite series over the last few years have been miniseries like Watchmen, like Big Little Lies was intended to be a, a miniseries initially. Um, Fleabag is a great example. That's the, you know, the British model of just you know, only a few uh, uh, episodes and a few se- uh, seasons. But I, I just yeah. feel like um, sometimes I can feel that there isn't really much here and I still enjoy it. Like 30 Rock is one of my favorite series of all time. I felt like by the seventh season, there really wasn't much going on, but I, I still enjoyed the seventh season, but I don't think it was as good as, you know, the third and fourth. Right, but 30 Rock was not plot dependent. 30 Rock was just, you know, dependent on the just, you know, firecracker comedy writing of Tina Fey and then the ability of those actors to deliver incredibly complicated comic beats. I, they could have kept going, you know, for years and years. I mean, at least the plots and characters were kind of beside the point, I think, there. For sure. Um, all right, we, we, we do need to kind of take a break here. Um, when we come back, we're going to talk about The Fly. So we're just going to take a break, and we're going to come back. But Pan says it is our fundraising break. in the morning when the dew is on the dew and a date a little maggot named Mary Lou someday we'll get married and we won't think twice when our kids all look like dancing rice I think I'll land on some horse manure think I'll land on the poop du jour think I'll land on a squash possum and then I'll land on your potato salad just washing up buzz 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 Yes, that's Haywood Banks singing from the point of view of a fly in the song Fly's Eyes. A fly made news this week in a way that nobody expected the vice presidential debate uh, on Wednesday night. It featured Plexiglass and Kamala Harris and Mike Pence. And then an uninvited guest uh, landed on Mike Pence's head. That was the fly. 
and somehow or other, I don't know. I, I uh, Mike Mike Pesca, nose panelist Mike Pesca was saying yesterday that like five years from now that will be the only thing anybody remembers about this debate. Uh, I don't know whether that's true or not, but it seems like it probably might be. But we thought we would spend a little time because Irene. Um, there's a way in which, you know, the fly immediately joined pop culture or maybe a, a bunch of different ways in which the fly joined pop culture. So, uh, yeah, dissect the fly for me, Irene Papoulis. Um, uh, well, um, all right. Well, I, I, I just love um, that kind of thing. I, you know, just like everybody else, I was watching the debate and I said, oh, there's a fly on the TV. And I was like, wait a minute, it's not on the TV. It's actually uh, on Pence's head. You know, that's really something. And then, of course, I had Twitter open. And so then I realized that it was exploding. Everybody, you know, somebody, you know, put the exact somebody put a YouTube video of the exact, you know, two minutes that the fly was actually there. And then like all these memes came out of like why a fly, you know, like what does a fly often land on? That must be Mike Pence. And um, and, you know, I think there's just something about our. You know, I do agree that it's amazing that that's the thing that that's the biggest takeaway from the debate that people had. But just the funny. So putting that aside for a second, I mean, just I think the funniness of how people, you know, there was, you know, uh, Biden, a picture that I guess was photoshopped of Biden with a fly swatter. And, you know, they're just so the, the Biden campaign is selling fly swatters. Yeah, <laughs> they are selling fly swatters. They don't have any fly swatters, um, but they are selling fly swatters. I mean, they will eventually make fly swatters and send them to the people who are sending them campaign money right now. But it's yeah. Anyway, continue, Irene. Yeah, I just think it's funny. I mean, people saying, oh, it's Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You know, she's coming back because she wants to influence or, you know, um, and I, I just think it's it just funny. I mean, that's my first thing. It's 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 a funny thing that everybody. Oh, you know, there were there were lots of um, Twitter accounts created as the fly's Twitter account, what the fly had to say, you know, the fly's going to have an account with Netflix now. And, you know, I don't know, it's 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 silly. And it's funny. And it gets away from this dire seriousness that that we've all been thinking and worrying about. Well, you know who should be grateful to the fly, Sean, is Mike Pence's messed up red eye. Uh, because if the fly hadn't come along, we would have been talking about his weird uh, pinkish red eye. But yeah, Sean, give us a, I'm saving the comedian for last. So, Sean, <laughs> the floor is yours. You have the fly. Well, yeah, Irene, Irene's right that it's uh, it's funny. And, uh, but what we really should be talking about is how the, the fly should be saluted. It's a true patriot. It's just, it just landed on... <laughs> When Panton just kind of distracted us from whatever garbage was coming out of his mouth anyway. Like, I, I feel like the like um, the idea that it'll be the, the lasting, you know, memory of this debate is probably true because who really was concerned about anything Mike Pence actually had to say that, like, there was nothing, or, or even Kamala Harris, like, nothing in that debate was going to be effective in terms of, like, stirring up the conversation that hasn't already been had. Like, the debate was... It was just a joke. It, yeah, Pence should be happy about that because he's clearly a corpse already. So it's like by <laughs> landing on that corpse is, I don't know, some sort of maybe he's the corpse of democracy and we can look at it like that. Uh, there's so oh. many ways to approach it. Well, yeah, as you're suggesting, I think uh, unlike the participants in most political debates, 
the fly was keeping it real, you know, the fly, <laughs> the fly was not, you know, pretending to be anything other than what it was or refusing to answer questions. I, the, my, my sad little take on this is that one of the reasons that we liked the fly uh, is because there's something kind of normal about a fly. I mean, it's not really normal to have a fly buzz into a debate and land on one of the uh, debaters. But, you know, things seem so weird and uh, abnormal now. I mean, it's weird to have a president who's sick with the, the the disease that's causing a pandemic and who's talking to Sean Hannity and talking about how healthy he is, how healthy he is while he coughs uh, on the Sean Hannity show. And it's weird to see the two vice presidential debaters debating with these huge sheets of plexiglass uh, between them that every day just brings these really strange, anomalous things that kind of don't seem to belong. And then you have a fly, you know, and like flies, we know about flies. We know what they do. We, they're, you know, they're unpredictable, but they're also kind of predictable. You're going to get flies once in a while. And there was something very nice and, you know, familiar about that at a time when normalcy. We, Peggy Noonan wrote in the Wall Street Journal today, the America is craving normalcy. Things have gotten so weird. And so I sort of thought that was, you know, that was one of the fly's virtues. It's like we, we kind of could recognize a fly. You know, we know what a fly is. Um, yeah, go ahead, Irene. Yeah. But, and it's also, in a way, it's also, it's abnormal too, though, in the sense that everything is so stylized in the debate. You know, we kind of know what they're going to say. We know that there's something sort of plastic about the whole experience. And this was this uncontrollable thing. You know, they couldn't have controlled it. They didn't know it was going to happen, you know, or anything. So it's, it's, it's abnormal. I agree that it's normal, but I think it's also abnormal in the sense of something surprising actually happened, you know. And so we want to say, wow, something surprising happened that we all experienced together. And, and that's part of the fun of it, too. It's like we're, we're real. You know, maybe real is the word. It's something that was actually not able. Nobody was controlling it. Nobody was planning it. Nobody was crowdsourcing it. It just happened. And we all shared that. And so we kind of like that. Sean, final thoughts? I was just kind of thinking of like the fly is like 2020's version of a streaker. Like we couldn't actually get a naked yes. man to rush the stage, but we got <laughs> exactly. a fly. That's the best we could do this year. Right. Uh, yeah, we can't have a yeah. fly, a streaker rather, run past uh, David Niven or whoever it was that the streaker ran past. All right. So the one thing that I will just quickly tell you, because one of the things that I'm doing these days for a project not related to the nose uh, is keeping an eye on far right extremist groups and what they talk about. Um, and one of the things that they were talking about this morning well, and yesterday, I think, was the possibility that the fly wasn't really there, that it was added as as kind of a some kind of digital file to the video feed by unscrupulous and dark forces and conspiracy conspirators on behalf of the Biden Harris campaign so that the the fly does not really exist uh it was a digital ad in made to look like a fly had land, uh, landed on Pence's head so that's the world we live in right now like that's even... amazing <laughs> what would the motivation be though for that do they think fly swatters yeah, well, no, because the fly swatters are going to work out for Biden. Well, yeah, maybe it is the Biden Harris. They want to sell fly swatters. No, I think they. I think, I think the far right groups are saying they're just trying to make Pence look bad, you know, and so fly lands on him. I don't know. These things don't have to make sense. They don't have. Well, it's not like Fargo. Be. They don't have to pay off. Right, <laughs> <Wait, laughs> it's not fiction. It doesn't have to make sense. Right. Yeah. 
All right, so we're going to take a little break here. Uh, and this is a very short break, not a fundraising break, just a little break. We'll come back. Uh, I'll say some thank yous, and then we're going to make some recommendations and some endorsements and stuff like that. are back. This is The Nose, uh, and we have with us today Sean Murray and Irene Papoulis as our panelists, and Kat Pastor is in the studio making things run, making things happen, figuring out all these pledge breaks and stuff like that. Uh, she also makes it possible for me to work remotely, and so uh, I'm here in my home, and the producer of this particular episode uh, is Jonathan McPants. He's also working remotely. Next week, well, let me just quickly say about next week, it's possible that we won't get on the air at all next week because of the uh, Amy Coney Barrett confirmation hearings. It's also possible that so many people in Washington will have, will be COVID positive by next week that there won't be any confirmation hearings. I have no idea, but it is, we're sort of at least currently on the working on the assumption that we will be preempted all week or almost all week or something like that. So sorry about that, but uh, history, history is unfolding before us. So a uh, time for Sean and Irene and for me to make some recommendations. Uh, we have a little extra time here, so feel free to stretch out uh, just a tiny bit. Um, go ahead, Irene. What are you going to recommend? Okay, I have two things. Um, the first one is, you know, I've always wanted to have a compost pile in my in my backyard, and I never have, and I know it's work, and I couldn't figure it out, and I've just been putting it off. So I ended up signing, and I knew there's this thing called Blue Earth Con- Compost that will come if you live in Hartford or West Hartford, and they just come and pick up your pot. Uh, compost. And I signed up with them recently. And it's so great. You know, they give you a bin and you put your compost in there and they come and they take it away and it's reasonably priced. And I just think it's a really great way to get rid of your compost and everything from cooking and everything. So it's good. And it's all in one place. And I highly recommend Blue Earth Compost. Um, And then the other one is a show that I think really does make a lot of sense. And it's actually a show that Colin recommended before a while ago, a couple of months ago or something. It's called The Report. The, um, the, I mean, not the report, no, the Bureau, the, the Bureau. Bureau, I always call it the report, the Bureau. It's a French series and it's kind of like, if you like Homeland, it's a spy thriller, but it's not, there isn't a lot of violence. It's more just, you know, character driven and, um, and, and it's just so interesting and, and, um, addictive. And, and it's also, you know, you can see like the city of Tehran, for example, they go and it made me think about how we never see Tehran. It's such a beautiful city, but in American shows, we don't, people don't, you know, Iran is usually just seen, um, on the, you know, level of terrorists, et cetera. But here we see, we we see a much more, it's much more textured in the way we actually see what it looks like and how, how elegant some of Tehran is. And, 
Um, and the characters are great and the acting is fantastic and it's really good. So it's called The Bureau. All right. Um, by the way, I'm being told there's an update. We'll probably be able to do a show on Friday. And if so, if so, it'll be the news. And if so, it'll be a news about the West Wing, which I realize is not a, a new show. We've, we've been wanting to do this for a while, though. And I think there's like some kind of West Wing movie or special or something that's coming along here. So uh, but anyway, it'll be about the West Wing uh, if we get on the air. All right. So, Sean, what have you got for us? Uh, I was recently on the Criterion channel and they added a bunch of Albert Brooks movies and uh, I was watching Real Life uh, came out in 1979 and it's a movie uh, Albert Brooks did about um, it's kind of like a precursor to reality television it's a show about him I mean, a movie about him like kind of following a family around and you know seeing their real life and it's so funny I just kind of thought about how Albert Brooks has just kind of been forgotten as one of just the great one of the greats of uh, the 70s and yeah, so I just wanted to recommend that collection that they have, specifically Real Life and um, you know Defending Your Life, but uh, the Criterion Collection on Albert Brooks. And then um, on uh, HBO, I've watched it earlier this summer, but just wanted to recommend it uh, for anyone who hasn't seen it. I May Destroy You, uh, Michaela Cole's uh, show on uh, on HBO, which was so... It was it's just a, such a amazing show that was funny and and like heavy and smart about like so much of the stuff that uh women go through and just millennials go through it's, it's a really great show all right so uh, thanks for um all of those uh i will just quickly say that um that Albert Brooks, you know, fits into the category we were talking before, too, about a comedian who started doing dramatic roles. These days, when you see Albert Brooks, it's often in kind of a character dramatic role, uh, yeah. you know, not a huge part. Uh, real life, I would second real life, and actually the scene in which Charles Grodin, as a veterinarian who has lost a horse on the operating table, and it's been captured by uh, Albert Brooks's kind of reality show cameras, tries to talk Albert out of using the footage, is it is really one one of the just there's always a scene like that there's Gary Marshall has a similar scene in Lost in America where Albert Brooks tries to talk Gary Marshall into giving him all the money that he's lost at a casino back uh, Brooks is just sort of a master at that kind of a scene so um, I will uh, get a little brainy for a moment sort of and uh, endorse the poetry of Louise Gluck I hope I'm saying that correctly it's a dotted you I never know how that goes I actually used one of her poems uh, as the uh, epigraph or whatever it's called the the poem, the quote page uh, at the beginning of my third and probably final book ever. Uh, but she's just a tremendous poet and very accessible. Uh, I believe the collection that I like is called Meadowlands. It's uh, kind of an adaptation of the story uh, of Odysseus, but uh, she's really terrific. I also recommend a piece in the current issue of The New Yorker. That would be the October 12th, I think, issue of The New Yorker um, uh, by Paige Williams. It's about the Lincoln Project. It's all the Republicans who got together to see uh, if they can do something about Donald Trump, something that the, they think the Democrats aren't good enough at doing. Uh, and it's a terrific piece, very funny piece. Uh, you really get the personalities of some of these uh, people coming out uh, and they're profane and they're funny and they're terrific. So those are my recommendations. Thanks to the panel. Here comes a request to support the show. Uh, and so please do that. Support the show, the station, everything else the Connecticut public does. When these nice people, Betsy and Allie, I now know, will ask you to do that. 